And John, would you turn the top two lights up a little bit more? Maybe the sconces, that's the first one on the uh, my right. Uh, the other side. Oh, I'm sorry, that's my left. <laughs> uh, dyslexia strikes again. Michael and Mike <laughs> to the group. Um, are you guys already in the Buddhist studies mailing list, email list? Are you Mike? Okay. I'll add you. But you can go immediately to the website and get the previous emails and all the links. And that's, Scott, what is the website with the Buddhist studies listings? It's buddhaststudies.kamagarmeditation.org. Yeah, so if you just do that, you'll get all the emails in the sequence. And in fact, anybody looking for previous things, you can get all that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So <clears throat> tonight we won't be having small groups, and so there's time for discussion. Um, I'm going to talk tonight about a little bit more about faith and how faith uh, naturally generates or reveals energy. And remember the opening talk, I, I talked about the working with the five faculties in a way is it's about uncovering this natural mechanism of awakening. I really like that image. So instead of Mark having to trudge up the mountain of awakening and deal with all of the obstacles. It's more about a, an uncovering of a natural dynamic or setting loose, setting free a natural dynamic that leads to awakening. And so initially, you know, so in this sense, it's, it's circular. And in being circular, there is a linearity to it. Like we begin with faith and in working with that, it releases into some effort, some energy. And then that energy, making effort, it has some results, like allows the mind to be mindful, allows the mind to become quiet, allows the mind to see things it hasn't seen before, which inspires deeper faith, greater faith. Um, before I begin, I just thought we'd take a few minutes if there's any comments about working with the Buddha's instructions and using the instructions for mindfulness of breathing as a way of uh, experimenting with confidence. <clears throat> uh, we may not like this fact, but in the Buddhist, the Buddhist tradition, probably all the lineages make a big deal uh, on the one hand of the Buddha's awakening and on the other hand, uh, wise friendship like having somebody around who knows what they're talking about, whether it's through a book or through a, a living teacher or a good friend who has more experience than we do. So in this sense, we're taking the instructions from somebody that you know maybe knows more than we do, maybe doesn't, but we're sort of operating with the hypothesis that maybe he does, and we're then we're not going to believe it without checking it out. So we check it out. So any reflections about how that's been, whether you're doing it at home, but at least we've done it the last three weeks here on Monday night. Yeah, Paul. <coughs> well, I feel like the Dharma is the only thing I really have true uh, confidence in. Uh, like where I have the most confidence in in my life and as long as um, I can take refuge in mindfulness and just continue learning how to drop the world and 
drop my self-centered drama and just find a little peace and refuge and just something as simple as the breath just encourages me more and more to just keep doing it. That's all I have to do is just keep going back and then everything takes care of itself. So it's really that simple. Yeah. Doug, would you uh, shut off the fan so we'll be able to hear each other better? Just you can turn it to auto. It's the middle switch in the bottom. Yeah, thanks. And the, the interesting thing, even just in, uh, it wasn't a question. It was more sharing about uh, that. Uh, what he has faith in is the Dharma, and it's only Paul was saying he, that's the only thing he has faith in. And one of the things I heard from what Paul was saying is, you know, just, just following these simple instructions and just getting a little experience of calm, just settling down a little bit, we get some sense that, oh, what this person, what these instructions are asking us to do, they have results. And then we get, like Paul was saying, then we have faith that, well, I just got to keep doing what I'm doing. You know, if I did this much and got this much results, if I do a little bit more, I'll get a little bit more results. Does that seem to capture what you said? Other thoughts about the sitting practice and faith that come to mind? Yeah, Kay. Yeah, well, I was reading the Buddha's instructions. <laughs> Did people hear what Kay said? And it's just good to remember to really project when we're speaking in the group. Um, one of the things that uh, that is revealed when you do these instructions is, you know, our mind, uh, the, our conditioned relative mind, the mind that thinks, you know, that aspect of the mind, it's trying to support the arising of happiness. Like when we're worrying, planning, obsessing about this or that, it's not like the mind is strategically trying to create unhappiness. No, it's trying to be happy. And so when we uh, take up a set of instructions like this, the Buddha, or who's ever giving us the instructions, they're, they're asking the mind, in a sense, this relative mind, to pursue happiness, but in a different way. So instead of the mind worrying or planning or judging or whatever else, fantasizing, whatever else it might be doing, the mind's giving something, given something else to reflect on. And this is important because a lot of times we superficially think that there's all that busyness that the mind does, worrying, planning, remembering, fantasizing. And <clears throat> so the, the sort of practice would be not doing that. But that doesn't really work. You know, if there was just a, something we could unplug and all of the neurotic stuff would cease, well, it would be pretty easy. But what we can do is we can train the mind. And, and you know, most of these, except for the first couple, the Buddha, from the third instruction on, begins with the phrase, one trains oneself. So he's actually, he's, act, he's um, asking us to set an intention, to sort of draw up an intention to do this. So we're doing something, you know? And that doing, you know, it's partly a way of being present, but it's also partly a way of using thought 
to help us be present in the way the Buddha is asking us to be present. Like you suggested, he's giving us some very specific things to do with the uh, attention. Some of you know we had a burglary and so we've dusted off an old safe and, uh, you know, we couldn't open it for a while. So we had a locksmith in. It's tricky. I mean, we even had the combination, but we didn't couldn't do it right. And it's, it's like that too. The, the pattern of, or the, the patterns of creating stress and resistance and confusion in the mind. It's a very complicated entanglement. So, in order to support the untangling, you know, part of the way that we're entangling the mind is that, uh, like, whatever we do to fix it just becomes part of the entangling process. So this is why it's relevant to be receiving instructions from somebody who, at least theoretically, has uh, achieved the complete untangling of his mind. And you know, and if we honestly, sincerely follow the instructions and don't get any benefit, I think it's a good idea to try something else. But I don't think it's a good idea to try something else until we've really sincerely, carefully tried instructions with the Buddha. Or, you know, whatever you've decided to take up. You know, here, for the most part, we've taken up the instructions of the Buddha. And that's really what the center is about. It's like, boy, this, you know, from my limited experience, whatever this person said, and I do, I get real results. So maybe more of what he said is also true. You know, if we've checked out this amount, of what he said and have achieved, have realized some direct benefits, well, maybe, you know, this piece of what he said is also true. Yeah. Thanks, Kay. Well, you might even, you know, it's kind of nice to get a couple sets, uh, a couple translations, rather, of the, the discourse. So it's the discourse... Um, Anapanasati Sutta and uh, the Discourse on Mindfulness of In and Out Breathing is usually how it's translated. If you have any trouble finding it, let me know. And I'll, I'll send out a... I can send out the link. And then there are a number of books that are written also about this practice. Larry Rosenberg has a good book. Um, trying to think who else has a good book on... On mindfulness of breathing? Yeah. Hmm. I haven't seen that. Just a, just a little bit, the actual directions. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, he has a little book on meditation instructions. It's probably in that. It's not called that. Oh, but, but it may not be something I know then. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The Teachings of the Buddha. Yeah, edited by Jack Kornfield and Gil Fronstall. Yeah, yeah, it's just suttas and it includes mm-hmm. that sutta, that discourse, yeah. That's the other one. Yeah, translating. Yeah, I forget the name of that, but if you, yeah, uh, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, famous Thai master, has a book on mindfulness of breathing. It's a little different than the Buddhist instructions, however. In that, it's I don't know if you've studied that, but it's yes, he kind of takes a different approach. Yeah. Do you know what it's called? Yeah. The value rules in the Yeah. Breath by breath, is it? Yeah. Breath by breath, yeah. Larry Rosenberg book he was referring to. Mm-hmm. Well, the instructions, there are just 16 instructions. We've gotten to nine. And, uh, well, maybe next week we'll go a little further. We'll see how far we get. But it's okay. You know, you don't need to get to the end. Just work at where we are. But it's sort of nice just to get a sense of where it goes. And it's also nice that even if we 
don't have continuity with the first instruction, always mindful, one breathes in, mindful, one breathes out, it doesn't mean that we can't be sensitive to rapture or sensitive to pleasure or sensitive to the mind or sensitive to the release of the mind. You know, that's the twelfth instruction, training oneself to be sensitive to the releasing of the mind. And then from there uh, into awareness of impermanence, dispassion, cessation. That's it. Cessation is the 16th instruction. No, I'll forget what the 16th is. That's the 15th. I just copied one little section of it, so I don't have the 16th instruction right here. Full and complete awakening, I know that much, but I don't know how it's translated. Huh? Tossing back? Uh huh. Yeah, probably Ajahn Tennyson would translate it as completely unbounded or something like that. Or, yeah. I'll get it. First for next week. And I'll send it out to everybody. Other comments from your sitting practice you want to share with the group before we go on? Maybe time for one more? Yeah, Stan. I find this really comforting to come back to after over and over again. It's really soothing. The question I would have is, as because I play with it in my mind when I hear about um, breathing in pleasure, breathing out, and so I think of, I have to play with, well, what is pleasure? Because a lot of times pleasure is, at least for me, grasping or clinging, and I know that's not probably what's meant in a this beautiful sunset or something lovely or a smile of a child or something like that or a puppy. Um, so I think of that kind of pleasure. What do you, what's pleasure mean for you? Because I kind of go back and forth. Yeah. Well, I'm working directly with the experience of breathing in and breathing out. And because the previous instruction, I mean, further back, the instruction was breathing in, you know, aware of the, sensitive to the whole body, breathing out sensitive to the whole body. And so there is that inclusive awareness, breathing in, breathing out. So in that field of awareness, in that space of the present moment as I'm breathing and breathing out, it's the mind is just sent, literally sensitive to anything that has the appearance of pleasure. And the interesting thing is uh, there is always pleasure. It's not something that needs to be manufactured. Now, the more settled we are, the more obvious the pleasantness will be. And the more agitated the mind is, the more obscure, hidden pleasure will be. So that's why that this, I like the trans, translation, you know, sensitive. You know, I'll breathe in sensitive to pleasure. So the work we're doing, Stan, is just to be sensitive. Like we're all, it's just in a way we're revealing that sensitivity. The mind is sensitive in so many different ways. We're highlighting the particular sensitivity to pleasure. It's like radar for pleasure. However subtle, we're noticing that. We're aware of that. Because in any given moment, it matters what we pay attention to. And so the Buddha is saying, if you want to be skillful, you know, pay attention, be sensitive to pleasure right now as you're breathing in and breathing out. So, you know, the instruction before is really instructive because right before that, he's asking us to be sensitive to rapture. And rapture is that, that lightness, that move. It's really often experiences a movement like uh, what... When the mind is more dense, less um, bright, less concentrated, then <clears throat> thinks the body and mind, it feels sort of heavy and ordinary, you know. But as the concentration deepens, the experience of the body and the mind begins to shift, transform, and it starts to feel lighter, you could say more energetic and less bones and weight. And part of that experience of 
the body-mind feeling more energetic is, you know, as an energetic happening, it has the characteristic of movement. It's alive with movement. And that movement is joyful. It's like um, an expression of rapture that things are moving. You know, because the movement is revealing a freedom. You know, and that freedom is pleasant. So, if you become sensitive to rapture, then instead... See, when you're sensitive to rapture, you're actually aware of the movement. Now, with the next instruction... You're, you're not so much focusing on the movement, you're focusing on the fact that movement is pleasant. It's actually, what's pleasant is the non-resistance to the movement or the non-friction. But in any case, the fact that there's movement means that it's, it's pleasant. It's there, it's natural, it doesn't need to be manufactured. We're simply becoming sensitive to what's true and the mind when it's not obscured, or the way that it is when it's not obscured, is pleasant. So to whatever degree the awareness isn't obscured, to that degree there's pleasantness that can be known, you know, that we can be sensitive to. Does that make sense? Yeah, I figured it had something to do with the, with the joy, and that reminds me of like in the seven factors of, awa- of awakening, that kind of rapture. Mm-hmm. Helpful the way you're describing it because other, the word pleasure is loaded and yeah. you're making putting it into context that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, and the thing about like what you were saying earlier about um, usually thinking about pleasure in terms of objects you grasp, that's because you're trying, you're, you're sort of thinking, okay, now pleasure, and you're going back to your memory instead of into the present moment. Uh, into the breathing or the ex- the energetic experience of the body and mind right here and opening, being sensitive, sensitive to it right here. Um, and that's always, you know, this is just by default when we're trying to do something, we want to um, objectify it into concepts and ideas and solve the problem there. But we're really training to solve our problem in the immediacy of experience. And that's, it's a, you know, obviously that's a, there's a lot of training involved in that. It makes me want to ask Andy Walensky, what, what's the word really for, you know, when they translate it as pleasure, I'm curious, what is the Pali, how would Andy do it? Because it throws me off. Yeah, it might be sukha. Okay. Yeah, and there's a place on the web where you can get that. Uh, I don't go there very often, you know, I... I I sort of trust. I mean, but my guess is pleasure. I'm guessing that that's sukha. Yeah, which is just the opposite of dukkha, you know. Yeah, Ed. Do you have any uh, suggestions for working on um, the best? I was talking about the, the 16 meditations. There's, uh, there's a lot of different ways. Of how to work with the. Yeah. Um, you know, I, mean, is, I guess you, and I've been experimenting with it, and I guess you could focus on one meditation for a while, or a quad, or all of them. Or, I guess there's a lot of different ways to approach it. There are a lot, and <laughs> and there are a lot of opinions, <laughs> unfortunately. So, I mean, in a perfect world, we'd have a teacher we have a lot of trust in who uses this or teaches this and we just follow her or his instructions and work with them and sort of share our experiences and get some feedback from the person. Um, Now, short of that, there are a number, not a lot, but there are a number of books, several mentioned. There are a couple others. Ajahn Tanisaro has some instructions on mindfulness of breathing. In some of these teachers, you could even get through email possibly some instructions from like as you're going along, you might be able to send an email with certain questions. Another approach is to ask several people the same question and then to reflect on the different responses you've gotten as you're working with the Buddha's instructions, you know, and have a couple books. 
But there are a lot there are a lot of rifts off of this particular sutta and where people have sort of made it their own. I don't think necessarily the Buddha would object. But then it it means that once you're following that, you have to you have to have a lot of tolerance for uh, not expecting this system to equate with this system because they won't necessarily, even though they're both drawing on the discourse on breathing, you know. So you have to be a little careful, you know, having four sources out there because you, you can get yourself really confused. Ultimately, we have to become independent through our own practice and our own reflection, uh, getting a sense. Remember, the practice is about freedom. It should have the taste of freedom as the practice is developing. Not like torturous, torturous, and then all of a sudden one day, oh, freedom. But the work all the way along, like the beginning part of the sutta, I mean, the instructions that we get in the sutta, this discourse, hopefully some of us, some of the people here tonight felt this, you know, there is some liberation and just being a little bit more calm. We were agitated, we sit down, to whatever degree we connect and sustain attention with the breath, we feel a little liberation from our neurotic tendencies. And so, and that, that sense of like relatively bound up, relatively unbound, and moving from being bound up to being relatively unbound. And that's really our guru, our teacher. And everybody else is just giving us tips but we have to check it out and see whether for us these suggestions, these instructions are leading to the mind or heart being more and more unbound, more regularly unbound. But, but the actual catalyst for the benefit you got, for the insight you got over this period of time might be the fact that um, you were sincere enough to do that work. You know, you were motivated enough. Like the actual motivation. Because what is that motivation coming from? It's coming from some understanding that, like a humility, that whatever the mind knows, it isn't enough that we're willing to pick up a system like this, be disciplined enough. And then the other thing about doing it the way you did it, Ed, where you, you've given yourself three minutes and you've got those 16 reflections that you're doing or 16 meditations that you're doing, is, and this is a, this is a piece that's really important to remember because a lot of people have been practicing for a while, they get stuck in tranquility but insight arises from investigation. You know, where the mind is actually seeing something it hasn't seen before. So we need to keep the mind actively engaged in the present moment. And you know how it is. Even if we're doing an interesting investigation, after a while, it's hard to stay fresh. Right? We kind of slip into some automatic pilot with that particular reflection. So one of the advantages of doing the way you did it 
is in three minutes it would be fresh again. The mind would actually be interested in the mind in a fresh way. So regardless of the particular 16 reflections, the fact that you started over every three minutes during your sit for a length of time, I don't know how many months it's been, how many months was it? Months. months. Have you been practicing this way? Yeah, so, you know, how many of us can say that every three minutes in our daily sits, we start over fresh, (laughs) you know? So there's some advantages that may not have anything to do with the particular instruction, but just the form and, and the dedication to that form that really supported the practice developing. So... This is a thing that we can uh, reflect on. Like, what actually is supportive? Is it the instruction? Is it that the mind is engaged, committed, showing up to the present moment? And that's part of the distillation. Like, we're really getting. And I, I find, you know, as a practitioner, I've swung both ways to, like, really taking up certain instructions and working with them to really not not really having any instructions. That doesn't mean I'm not practicing. Well, the instruction's really simple, you know, being interested in dukkha and being interested in non-dukkha. That's that's often how I practice. And I I don't, you know, and then sometimes I worry that, oh, I know, I should use some of the more specific instructions. So, you know, there are advantages and disadvantages, and I think that's what we have to what I was saying earlier, we have to become more and more independent about that. So, you know, this is how it is with these Buddhist studies classes where we're learning all of these models. I really find it personally useful to learn these models and to reflect on these models because then that allows us to do the practice freeform. So, when, you, when you're disciplined, when you really study these forms and as you're studying then, then like during the course, during the week, you sort of formally reflect on them, like Ed was saying he's been doing with the, uh, the Anapanasati discourse for over a year or for a year. So for these five faculties, for faith, we should be actively reflecting on it because then we can do it freeform. Then it just becomes part of who we are. It doesn't have to feel artificial. It doesn't have to feel like to be a good Buddhist, I have to do it this way. But we'll just naturally start using these models. And this is what I found to be true. And this is what I think makes the Buddha an exceptional teacher. And I, you know, I don't think it's limited to the Buddha. I think anybody who has very deep insight, when they articulate the practice, their articulation is connected to these deep patterns that are universal. That isn't specific to this person's mind. It's more universal to the mind, to all minds. So when they talk about these patterns or instructions, give these instructions, they're like keys that open things up. That's not specific to the Buddhist mind. These, when I think about the moments of the arising of great faith and tears and deep appreciation, gratitude, it's in those moments when, in my practice, I saw something uh, that sort of, it's like on my own, seeing something and then realizing, oh, this is what the Buddha was talking about. It was, uh, it was so reassuring. I had so much gratitude that what I had been studying lines up with my experience. It's, you know, it's like that feeling of, uh, of protection, like, oh, I'm in this great stream of countless human beings, they've done this, they've realized this, they've walked this before, I'm not alone. This works. And so that's, the, that's how I relate to these forms. And it's easy for us to slide to, you know, always, it's easy to slide to two extremes of being uh, overly, neurotically dependent, need to memorize, can't deviate from, and on the other hand, sort of a ne- neglectful or disrespectful attitude as if I can just figure it out on my own. I don't need help from anybody. 
or who knows whether they're right. Well, who does know? But we can check it out. You know, we could say, well, okay, this person said this. Let me check it out. See if it works. I mean, a lot of us, a lot of us experimented with drugs back when we were younger. You know, we didn't know what was going to happen, but you know, somebody said, "Hey, try this." You know, we were willing. Well, maybe we can try the Buddhist teachings. You know, if we're willing to try things that seem to carry a lot more risks than uh, paying attention to your in breath or something. <laughs> Oh, good. <laughs> Not drugs. <laughs> and, uh, and tranquility. I just want to say that um, uh, well, I was just on vacation for three weeks, so I'm sure that has something to do with it. But um, I have been experiencing a lot of pleasure and um, just uh, really recognizing mindfulness in a, in a visceral uh, body, a bodily way. Casey, maybe a little louder. And um, I think where it maybe gets dangerous is when you're really indulging in that. Uh, But would that be pleasant? Well, that's what I'm... Right, okay, sure. So there's a difference between being sensitive to it, feeling that it's there, you know, and, and turning on to that sensitivity and, I suppose, taking pleasure in it. So... very common, you know, it's, it's a wonderful thing, and, and tranquility, at least as I've been experiencing it, is, it's a really wonderful healing thing, and I, don't, I mean, I don't, I don't think I would, uh, it, it just makes everything so much easier, I, I, you know, I can follow my breath for hours just because it's pleasurable, it's so easy, you know, and, and that's just wonderfully healing, it's been a, a great uh, force in my life for healing. Yeah. So, that's just... That's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, the interesting thing is, what do we do with the information we just got from Casey? You know, we can use it to judge ourselves. Uh, why don't I get any pleasure? Or, or we can... It's like, well, he has a human mind. I have a human mind. And I think this is... This is the thing is, are we willing to experiment? You know, are we willing to go from whatever encouragement we receive from reading the Buddha's discourse on mindfulness of breathing or hearing Casey talk about his practice and his experience with tranquility? Are we willing to, from that to make some effort to see whether this is also available for this mind or this heart? You know, and when we bump up against something like where it, it appears that we don't get it, you know, he got it, but I don't get it, then are we willing to get interested in whatever that roadblock might be? Or do we believe the doubt, you know, believe the thought, this isn't for me? I guess the Buddha meant other people, but not me, you know? And this is, this is really all about faith, you know, how we hear things. One of the articles I sent to everybody today, Ajahn Tanisro has collected um, articles, or not articles, I'm sorry, the aspects of the Buddhist teachings on stream entry. And he has two parts. One is what leads to stream entry and uh, one's experience at stream entry and after. Now, stream entry is the first stage of awakening. And... uh, can be easy, easier maybe just to think about it in terms of deep insight. Deep insight into the nature of things. And in particular, uh, into the nature of the mind that's not clinging. A deep experience of the mind not clinging. Not clinging to what? Well, not clinging to what's coming and going, which is like our experience. And, you know, in that... Um, and I read this, I think the first week, I read the discourse that's related to this. And this is in that, uh, the discourse is in the article I sent you today, but it was also uh, behind Ajahn Tanasaro's 
comments in Wings to Awakening, and then he has a lot of sections from the Buddha's discourses back there. So the Buddha says there were four supports for stream entry, right? Association with people of integrity, listening to the Dhamma, the teachings, appropriate attention, and then the fourth is practice, or practice in accordance with the Dhamma, practice in accordance with the teachings. And he, you know, mindfulness or alert and alertness, withdrawing, like withdrawing from our fixation on the sense, senses, right conduct, i.e. non-harming, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling, mindfulness of the mind, mindfulness of mind objects, seven factors of awakening, clear knowing and release. But all we need to remember are these four things, association with people of integrity. I mean, there's... There is a, uh, a sympathetic vibration. When we're around people that are very agitated, we feel agitated. When we're around people who are very calm, it's calming. When we're around people that, you know, are have no problems har- harming others, it seems to make sense that when you need to get something, it's okay to harm others. When we're around people who are are very full of care about not harming others, it all of a sudden makes sense to be full of care about not harming others. So this instruction, like the cause for deep insight, which of course leads to unshakable faith, is being around people who are further along than we are in this practice. It makes a difference. And listening to the teachings. I mean, how many of us at our dark times, things are challenging, have put a Dhamma talk on, you know? And it's very soothing and protecting, even if we're not actively reflecting or trying to remember, but just in the vicinity. And this has been the case since the time of the Buddha. Even the Buddha himself, when he was sick, would ask somebody to recite one of his talks on the seven factors of awakening, for example. Now, isn't that interesting? That instead of putting on pop music, you know, when the Buddha wants something soothing, he would want to hear a discourse on the seven factors of awakening, these qualities of mind that, when in balance, lead to freedom. So it's like that's the ultimate balm. And you might have had that experience. One of the interesting things, Ed mentioned Thich Nhat Hanh, this wonderful teacher, and uh, I, I did a three-week retreat out at Plum Village a while back, and it was interesting. He would talk, you know, and he'd give like a two-hour Dharma talk every morning, uh, six days a week during that three-week retreat. And uh, it was like a certain portion of the people just could not stay awake. And it wasn't that they didn't want to stay awake. I mean, really sincere well-practiced people just falling over. (laughs) And I think his calm, wise presence made people feel really safe. And when people feel really safe, they just want to cuddle up. You know, it's like, finally I feel safe, now I can rest. You know, now I can really, it's safe to go to sleep. Because that's what we do. When we feel safe, we go to sleep. And it was just interesting to see it. Morning after morning. <laughs> Sometimes he'd be sitting, I'd sat right in front. I'd get there really early so I could get a front row seat right in front of him. But you'd be sitting there and all of a sudden you hear a crash and you know someone <laughs> hit the floor. <laughs> you know, it seems like he is a powerful tranquilizer. <laughs> so, the, you know, so listening uh, to the Dhamma can be that way. So being around people, listening to the Dhamma, appropriate attention. So this is uh, leads to deep insight and is a cause for powerful faith. Just understanding the power of presence, like being present and seeing that actually as the most powerful thing. I remember once in New York City, I was living at this meditation yoga center uh, right, right in Manhattan, and uh, it was a beautiful place. 
and uh, you know, real structured environment. We sat three times a day and did yoga and did breathing practice and did lots of chanting and lots of service. And anyway, there was a natural health food store in the first floor and a bookstore. And I was sort of the administrator of the place. And uh, once somebody came in, you know, we were in right in New York City and somebody came in and there's just a lot of shoplifting. And so the person at the bookstore desk, you know, calls me. I was up in the office. I come down and there's this guy, you know, and uh, and I just remember, uh, you know, just like not going to not going to sort of take my gaze off of him. So I just sort of stood there. I, you know, I wasn't going to try to wrestle him out of the place, but just not let him do whatever he was thinking of doing. And uh, yeah, I was doing a lot of practice. So I was pretty calm and I was just sort of standing there with the guy and relaxed, you know, and he, he kind of really came up to me and uh, <laughs> I could tell he was really frightened by my presence. And, uh, you know, he kind of said, did some sort of bravado stuff, said some stuff to me. But I, I saw in that moment, in a relaxed way, that uh, actually, like, how powerful it was to be present with somebody, you know. And then he walked away. And it's not a, you know, I'm not saying it's any sort of special event. But what was special to me was just uh, a clearer sense of how powerful it is to just be present with what's going on. And it's so nice because then we don't have to figure out what we should do. I didn't know what to do with this guy. You know, I, I had no experience like dealing with shoplifters or, you know, whether you should do this or whether you should do that or call the police. Or, But it was really nice to be able to have something to do. And I'm guessing that if there, you know, if something else needed to be done, maybe I would have... You know, I would have realized it in that state of being present. You know, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. So that's the third thing, the appropriate attention. And the fourth is then, of course, practicing. So we we understand the power of presence. And then all these lists, all the different ways we practice, it's basically learning how to uncover or refine that power or set that power to work, to, you know, what does that power do? What does the power of simple awareness do? Well, it, it reveals things, you know. It opens up our experience and we understand the way that it is. So all the different instructions, you know, practice in accordance with the Dhamma, then we just start taking up these lists. And one of the nice things, like I was saying a few minutes ago, of going through the list is it inspires us to look here or look there. You know, in the last couple of weeks, and we've spent a little bit more time on faith because, you know, first of all, it doesn't come up that much in the Buddhist studies courses. But also, I think it doesn't come up generally that much in Buddhist practice. A lot of us come to Buddhism because we didn't have faith in, you know, what we are taught as children in our religions, you know, that of our parents. But this kind of faith is really about our own experiences. Like uh, I read from Sharon's book a couple of weeks ago, learning to trust our own experience. I encourage you to read uh, the other link. So I sent out three links. Two are, are, have to do with stream entry. The first part is what leads to stream entry. The second part is uh, the experience of stream entry and experiencing after stream entry. Now those, you know, you you may not want to dig into too much, but just over time, it would be a good resource to have. This other article, Faith and Awakening, I think it's called, from uh, Kanasaro Bhikkhu. And um, get the title of that. But anyway, uh, Faith and Awakening, yeah. In that, uh, I encourage you to read that. I think you'll find that useful. Because uh, one of the things that Ajahn Tanasaro says is, sometimes faith can arise from simply observing things. But other kinds of faith or confidence depend on us going out and doing something. And that's actually what develops the faith. 
So, in the, and then he goes on, of course, and says, in the case of awakening or liberation, the faith, what drives a system, it depends on action. It depends on volition. We actually have to go do something. We hear about it. You know, we hear the teachings of the Buddha, but it's not enough to hear the teachings of the Buddha. We actually have to put into practice what he says and then see what the results are. You know, experience the results, be inspired by the results, dig a little bit more, commit a little bit more, do a little bit more practice, get a little bit more results. And then he just goes on and he gives five or so similes from the Buddha about this, about how faith leads to action and not always success, you know, but we learn something. And the first simile I'll just share, um, it's like uh, somebody's dragging somebody through a bed of coals. You know, imagine somebody grabbing your feet and pulling you through a bed of red hot coals. I forgot to mention that part. <laughs> you know, and uh, imagine how we try to get away. So, you know, that's one aspect of faith, you know, like faith in our experience of our own suffering and our effort to get out of it. You know, like we're burning. What can I do to get out of it? So obviously this is the grossest form. But you see, we're willing to squirm. We're willing to kick. We're willing to do whatever we can to get free. And then from there to more and more refined responses. I'll get the last simile I'll share and then you can skim through or read through the article. This was uh, at one point, I think, in Tricycle Magazine, but I downloaded it from the uh, and gave you the link for Access to Insight. So it's, I think, a slightly longer verse, uh, version than was in the magazine uh, about five years ago. But the, the last simile he shares is, like if you're looking in the jungle for a big <coughs> um, elephant bowl, and you see a big footprint, you know, you might, and sometimes we're like this, we just assume, oh, this is it, I found it. You know, I just got that. But we don't actually know, you know. And as this simile goes, well, it could be a dwarf female with big feet. You know, so it may not be the big master male elephant that we're searching for. And then you go, keep following the footsteps, you know, and you see some, test scratches high up in a tree. And you realize, oh, it must be the bull, you know, because look at how tall, I mean, to scratch that high up into the tree. But, you know, but, you know, as the simile is teaching us, that, well, we don't actually know because we haven't seen it yet. We have evidence, but we haven't actually seen it. And maybe just really a tall female elephant or, you know, whatever it is. You know, and it isn't until, and this is how the simile ends, you know, until you actually see the elephant you're looking for there in the clearing that you know you found it. And so it's the same, again, how faith, like now at this point in this simile, you know, we're actually having direct experience. We're seeing a footprint. We're seeing scratch marks. We're having tranquility. We're experiencing some, experiencing some insight where we're seeing things we haven't seen before about the mind. We're experiencing what it feels like to not cling to experience in moments. Feeling that release of the heart when the mind isn't clinging. So, these are just different examples of, of maybe the maturation of faith, you know, or the different frequencies of faith, you know, dense, gross faith, very refined faith, and the kind of effort that comes out of it. So that's what we'll be talking about next week. And you can look uh, specifically in your own life. And remember, we'll have small groups next week. So one of the things you might share in the small group is as you're inspired by these teachings, as you're inspired by your own practice, just notice that energy of inspiration. Like, What kind of effort does it lead you to? One of the classic, uh, from the Buddhist teachings, one of the classic expressions of right effort is this taking responsibility for the integrity, the quality of the mind and a willingness to let go of what, like if we're really interested in peace 
and love and uh, a sort of a, a steady, calm presence in life, then, then we take responsibility. If we're looking at something on the internet that's agitating the mind, we see that disconnect. It's like, well, here's, what I'm, here's where I'm moving toward happiness. Then why am I picking this up? Why am I dwelling in this way? If this is what I really want, feel drawn to, inspired by. So the effort that comes out of inspiration, whatever kind of faith we're experiencing, is a willingness to take responsibility for what we're doing with the mind. And if it's not in alignment with our deeper aspiration, then we're going to practice abandoning abandoning those Qualities. However, we can learn how to do that and to cultivate, to develop and maintain the beautiful qualities that are in alignment. Qualities like tranquility, like joy, like investigation, you know, the seven factors of awakening that a number of you have studied when we covered it not too long ago. Any last thoughts before we end tonight? We just have a minute or two left. Yes. I'm just curious about something. Um, I know this is all a process and we all have different learning styles and the various sessions that I've attended at the center, there's a lot of discussion about reflecting and I haven't heard anything about uh, recording your experiences or journaling and I was just thinking when the gentleman was talking about the different practices or mm-hmm. um, meditations and how it's changed over time, you know, the course of the year. Do you recommend that for your students? Or is that more experience in clinging by, you know, writing something down? And well, you'd have to experiment and see what you actually get from the experience. I can imagine it being skillful and I can imagine it not being so useful. Um, but definitely, like from the teachings of the Buddha and from my own experience, it's been very helpful to have conversations with other practitioners specifically about my experiences and about hear, listening to their experiencing experiences and talking about like how how it all makes sense, like really trying to understand their experience in light of my experience. So more interaction. Well, that, I'm just saying personally, I found that very useful. I find it very useful from uh, personally to study, and then as I'm studying, as I'm reading other teachers. Basically, I'm doing what I just described, but now from a text. So I'm reading Jack Hornfield's book, or I'm reading the Buddha's teachings, and then reflecting on my own experience in light of what I've just read. So what I encourage people to do, whether they're listening to a talk or reading um, somebody's teachings, to keep putting it down. Shut it off for a minute and reflect on what you just heard. So that you're, you're not just using it as a a balm to calm the mind, you know, like people do, you know, listen to Dharma talk and it's like a feeling of protection. But we're really practicing the digestion. So we shut it off. We put the book down after we've read a paragraph or a page. And then we we basically use it to illuminate our experience right then and there and see like, is this true now, what I just read, you know? Or how might this relate to experience? So either taking something from the past and reflecting on it or just looking at our present moment experience. And I think journaling probably could be used in these same ways, you know. Um, so you just have to look if the journaling is a kind of proliferation that tends to support more proliferation, or whether it's a reflection that's leading the mind in the direction of cessation, where the mind is letting go of becoming letting go of grasping, letting go of, of reacting. So you just have to check and see what the results are from it. So let's take a moment, let go of the words. We can take a couple breaths together.
Thanks for listening and for your comments tonight. couple announcements. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.